Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your revealed word in the book of Exodus. It's been a fantastic study the past 37 weeks or so looking at how you have dealt with your people, how you have saved them for your glory and shown that you are more powerful than any of the gods of the world. I pray that your powerful hand would be seen in this church. We believe that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that as we close out the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, I pray that we would respond how you want us to respond, with a fearless fear. I pray that your presence would be with us this morning, just as real as it was to the Israelites thousands of years ago. Lord, we have many issues in the world going on today and even this week that deserve our prayer. Lord, we, we lift up to you the Early Rain Covenant Church in China, and especially Pastor Wang Yi. We thank you, God, for his faithfulness to the gospel and how he was not in fear of the Chinese government. I pray that you would, by your grace, cause his testimony and persecution to, to grow the, church, the house church movement and the true Christians in China. I pray that your gospel would spread like wildfire and that you, you would exonerate Pastor Wang Yi, Father, and he'd be an example to us in free countries to be more bold in our preaching of the gospel. Lord, I also lift up, as I'm commanded to our leader, Donald Trump, to you. I pray that you give him wisdom and save him by your grace. I pray that you give our nation and all of his cabinet members great wisdom and our dealings in foreign affairs especially. I pray that you would protect us from any further escalation with Iran. And I pray as well for all the leaders in Iran and all the people in that nation that your house churches would continue to grow there as well. That you would even save and convert the most ardent Muslims in that nation, Father, and that you would prevent us from any escalation, Father. I pray that you would use these wars and rumors of wars to bring about a great awareness that this life is short and a vapor. Cause us to cling to you and for people in America and in Iran to consider the foundation for why they do anything and turn to Christ. I also lift up to you the country of Australia right now. Much of it is up in fire um, and we know that um, the nation of Australia, in a large part in their legislation, is turned away from your biblical norms in dealing with marriage and other issues. We pray that you would cause this, this um, great breakout of fire as well to alert the people of Australia and the government there to turn towards you, Father. Um, cause us to be in a state that is, um, that is prone to get fires ourselves, Father. I pray that we would see these little warnings as, a, as an example for what the eternal fire might be like, and I pray that we would turn to you and warn people of the fire to come. Save Australia, save us, and do a mighty work this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you and preaching the final sermon in the book of Exodus. So, 37 weeks back, there's a lot that has changed in that time. Brandon and Hazel have been married um, there's many children on the way now in our church that weren't 37 weeks ago. Um, God has done a lot through our church, but more importantly than even the relationships he's formed and the way he's changed us, I pray that you have been molded by the word of God, that the book of Exodus has come alive to you, and you see how God's word applies to your very life, that he is able to deliver you from the idols of this world, and how he is mighty to save. I pray that you see him as the great Yahweh, the great God who is the I am, and that you have an increased confidence in him. Even as we close out the Ten Commandments, it's a, it's a section of scripture that is far too uh, often neglected. 
I pray that you see it for what it truly is, a word of God given to God's redeemed people to make us more like him, to teach us his ways and how they universally apply to us. That they not only expose our sin and our need for a savior, but also teach us how we should live. I pray that you have been listening and responding. This morning we arrive upon a passage where the Israelites have just finished hearing God audibly communicate the Ten Commandments to them. And it is accompanied by thunderstorms, lightning, and a smoking mountain. Spurgeon said, I love the lightnings. God's thunder is my delight. I'm ashamed to stay inside whenever there's thunder outside. I like to hear my Heavenly Father's voice in the thunder. Charles Spurgeon got what we need to get this morning. He relished in God's transcendent power. And I know that us Californians are not accustomed to big thunderstorms, but if you ever traveled anywhere else in the world where they have them, I think you get a taste of what he's talking about. While you don't see a smoking mountain in a blast of a trumpet this morning, you are very much saints in the holy presence of God. We looked at his incommunicable attributes in Sunday seminar last week to know that he is everywhere in his fullness. And so don't be lulled to sleep because there's not fireworks going on behind me, but be acutely aware that you are in the presence of God and he demands a response not only from Israel, but from you as well. So the question is, how have you been responding to the Ten Commandments? How have you been responding? Have you felt guilty? convicted, encouraged, challenged. There's any number of responses we have to the Ten Commandments. I hope that you, throughout the last ten weeks or so, have been seeing them through the lens of the gospel, and that through Christ, we don't see them as things that are putting us under the yoke of bondage, like a cruel master, but in Christ, they truly lead to freedom. Regardless of what your response has been, God shows us what he wants our response to be, from Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21 this morning. Primarily, he wants our response going forward for the rest of our lives to be fearless fear. How you respond to the Ten Commandments must be fearless fear. Before you start thinking, Pastor Kurt's gone crazy, it sounds like a paradoxical phrase, fearless fear. I'm simply titling the, the message of the sermon based on what Moses says in verse 20, he says that they should not fear, not be afraid, that they might walk in the fear of God. And so Moses is the one who invents the paradox, not me. We just have to wrestle with it and figure out what it means. By God's grace, we will figure out what the fear of the Lord, the true fear of the Lord, means this morning, as we want to shape the rest of our lives after the Ten Commandments and living in light of them. The big idea I want to stick with you this morning is because of God's awesome holiness, and as Brandon pointed out in prayer this morning, awesome doesn't just mean cool or radical, um, but awesome means truly in awe of God. He is, we should have awe before him. So the big idea is because of God's awesome holiness, we need a mediator to follow God with fearless fear. Because of God's awesome holiness, you and I need a mediator to follow God in fearless fear. We'll see this in three simple points this morning. First, his awesome holiness. Second, the need for a mandatory mediator. And lastly, what it means to have fearless fear. Are you with me this morning? 
Are you ready to, to close out this sermon series with a bang? To, to have it leave an indelible mark on your soul? I pray you do. I pray you do. So first, God's awesome holiness. God wants us to know his awesome holiness through both his theophany and his commandments. His theophany and his commandments. Look with me at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. We see that their immediate response to this lightning and thunder was standing as far away as they could. And they are begging Moses, don't have God speak to us anymore. It's apparent that they were in fear of their lives. Certainly God's enemies should run and flee from his presence, but his own redeemed people? Is that the response you would have expected out of Israel? Remember, the Ten Commandments are prefaced by, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. So God isn't communicating the Ten Commandments as though they are charges being brought to someone on death row. He's bringing the Ten Commandments to his own dear children who he has just saved from a horrific kidnapping and are now his. So they are given in the context of love and redemption. And yet... Based on God's theophany, him revealing himself in such a terrifying way, in the hearing of the law, his people still cower and want to stand as far away as they can. The point of God's theophany, the great signs of a smoking mountain and lightning, it wasn't to intimidate them into a cowering submission, but it was to give them a glimpse of his awesome holiness to let Israel know and to let the church know this morning that he is a powerful and even dangerous God that we need to make sure that we are approaching with good and holy fear. Israel, as we know, is like us, and they are prone to wander and easily forget God's commandments. We see, sadly, in Exhibit A, the golden calf incident a few chapters later. And so God wanted his commandments to be surrounded by an ultra-high-def warning flares that would leave a mark on them and the future generations to come so that when they're tempted by idolatry in the wilderness, they would not only remember the speaking of the Ten Commandments, but the huge blast of thunder that surrounded it that would have certainly been unforgettable. Now, as impressive as this theophany was, I argue that the primary reason why they were afraid and were trembling was not what they saw with their senses or heard with their ears, but it was the content of the Ten Commandments that was piercing directly into their hearts. It wasn't so much the sensory overload that you get when you're in an IMAX movie theater, but it was the piercing of the content of the Ten Commandments right through their heart. God wanted his people to know the law not just to be moral and to live in a right way, but he wanted them to know the content of the Ten Commandments so that his awesome holiness would be revealed to his people. God is worthy to be put first in our lives. His name is holy and most honorable, and he always gives life. He is always faithful and true and generous to his people. 
What I did just there is describe God in the inverse of the Ten Commandments. All the you shall nots are because God essentially is the opposite. He is those good things. So in all the you shall nots, they're not our arbitrary laws God passes down to stifle his people's joy. But he tells them about who he is through the Ten Commandments so that we see how good and true and faithful he is. You might think, wow, God is awesome. Why would anyone be afraid of him and demand that he stop speaking? Well, Israel's great problem is my problem, and it's your problem too. In revealing the awesomeness of God, we realize that we are the opposite. That we are the opposite. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, through the Ten Commandments, comes knowledge of sin. Instead of beholding his awesome holiness, we are prone to avoid the law altogether, to stand far away from it, or reinvent the law and cater it to our own sinful nature because too often we are so comfortable with our sin that we, that, and we want to think that we are good that we don't want to see the holiness of God because it exposes our sin. As we've worked through each commandment, we've seen the ways that we get comfortable with dis, distorting the holiness of God. I'll just take a smattering. The third commandment, we imagine a God who doesn't mind how we use our speech. The fourth commandment, we imagine a God who is okay with us working and not worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's Day. The sixth, seventh, and tenth commandments put together, we imagine a God who understands if we aren't really content with him or his gifts and are angry in our hearts towards those who upset our expectations. He, we, we imagine a God who understands if we have passions that we long after other people or possessions or circumstances that we don't currently have. We reinvent God in our mind and make an idol. And we stand far off, just like Israel did from the Ten Commandments. But instead, God says, that doesn't have to be the case. I want you to be in awe, and right awe, and to see my holiness for what it is. On Christmas Day, 2007, just in our own backyard in San Francisco at the zoo, a tiger escaped from her open-air enclosure, killing a 17-year-old Carlos Sousa Jr., 2007, just in our backyard. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums said the attack was the first time a visitor had been killed by an escaped animal at a member zoo since that association's founding in 1924. Many of you have been to the San Francisco Zoo. Can you imagine a tiger jumping over the, the enclosure and killing this, this boy, the 17-year-old boy, Carlos Sousa? Without a protective wall separating us from God's fierce holiness, we too are right to tremble, be afraid, and stand far off. And even conclude, as Israel does, that standing too close would indeed lead to death because God's holiness is much more fierce than that tiger. 
But Israel's response, we see in verse 19, isn't hopeless. It instructs us in verse 19 that we should neither avoid God nor think we can tame God. But the right response for us is to call out for a mediator, which leads us to our second point. Look at verse 19 with me. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Just as Moses mediated for Israel, we need a mediator to live before God. From verse 19, we get the sense that God's audible voice had become so overwhelming to them that Israel tapped out and cried out to their leader Moses to speak to them instead. This wasn't necessarily wrong, given the fact that even though they are God's chosen people, they were still sinful men and women who knew that if they stood in the blaze of God's holiness any longer, they would be incinerated. And God and Moses actually did honor Israel's request here. We see Moses speaking to them next in verse 20. So the request to have Moses speak to them and not God's voice It wasn't necessarily a wrong thing given their state of sinfulness. The fact that Moses was to be Israel's mediator and speak on their behalf, it wasn't new. We saw all the way back from the beginning of of Exodus, if you can remember, that Moses was to be a representative for Israel and to mediate between them and God. But here, even though he was their mediator, they had a special urgency that, that God's holiness be communicated to them through a man like them. Through a man like them. So even though Moses was the de facto mediator for Israel, being a sinful man, we realize, and Moses realized, and Israel realized, that that we need not only a mediator like Moses, but we need a perfect mediator. One who was truly God and truly man, sinless and perfect, able to stand in the presence of God, Without, with, with, a, with a full face, unlike Moses who had to turn his, and also able to speak to us in a way that we can understand and not be blown away. By God's grace, praise him, he has sent us such a mediator in the God-man Jesus Christ. Just as Israel said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, Jesus Christ speaks to us today through his word, and represents God in his holiness, in his holy presence, as he mercifully mediates to us in in our human flesh. He mediates God's holiness to us in human flesh. Jesus does something Moses never could by perfectly fulfilling God's law and showing us what it looks like in practice. Remember Matthew 5.17 Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He even later in Matthew summarizes all ten commandments, and he boils them down to two, and he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus comes to us and does something Moses never could, fulfilling the law perfectly, summarizing it for us, teaching it to us, speaking to us the law in a way that we can understand the heart of it. But but the the most important part of Jesus' mediation for us is that not only that he fulfills the law, 
but he takes our guilt for breaking the law and deserving to die in God's holy presence. Listen to how the author of Hebrews applies our passage of us as believers in the new covenant to this very scene in Exodus 20. So the author of Hebrews grabs our passage and he preaches a sermon to his new covenant church and this is what he has to say about it and how we should interpret it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So author of Hebrews is recounting this passage. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is amazing news for us, saints. Although in our passage, we are envisioning ourselves out at Mount Mount Sinai, sorry, the reality is that we don't have to approach Mount Sinai anymore. We, because of the sprinkled blood of Christ, we get to approach a different mountain, Mount Zion. What we should expect is not a blazing blast of thunder that will blow us away, but we can now approach God in the heavenly city of Jerusalem We can approach God's heavenly presence now, and rather than expecting to die as Israel did, we can expect to live and even be welcomed. Listen to how Hebrews describes this. He says, instead of terrible dread, we approach God's unmitigated gracious presence, that we get to approach a mountain of angels feasting on the best food you'll ever taste, standing next to our Christian brothers and sisters, and most importantly, we'll get to see our mediator, Jesus, face to face, and with tears of joy, praise him and thank him for his shed blood on our behalf, thanking him that his flesh was nailed to a cross of wood, that he received eternal death and the the punishment for breaking the Ten Commandments that we deserved. Jesus underwent the blast of God's holiness on the cross. And when it says that his blood was sprinkled, that doesn't mean that just a little bit of blood came out of Jesus. No, the whole idea of sprinkling of blood refers to the temple sacrifices and the animals that they would come and slaughter and they would sprinkle blood on the holy of holies, on, on the temple, so that they could be cleansed. Both their sin could be done away with and their consciences could be stain-free, completely clear. Jesus' blood is better than any of any bulls or goats or sacrifices that could ever come. And through his work on the cross, we we can now approach God at Mount Zion. Through repenting of our countless commandment breaking, if you even think back the last 10 weeks over the 10 commandments we surveyed, 
I'm sure if you think any, a number of time, any amount of time, you can recall the ways that you've, you have fallen short of those Ten Commandments. The closing of Exodus, I don't want you to be left depressed, but I want you to be left encouraged and empowered and, and realizing that, yes, you are guilty. Yes, you cannot live up to them, but Christ did on your behalf. And because he did, you can now be forgiven and cleansed and given his righteousness to approach Mount Zion, empowered to live out the law, not on your power, but his. As a perfect mediator, Christ not only gives us his forgiveness and righteousness, but also his Holy Spirit, so that we have the ability to live out the the heart of the Ten Commandments. In, In verse 21 in Exodus 20, Moses draws near to the thick darkness of God. Jesus, being an even better mediator than Moses, not only draws near to God, but has always eternally been in the presence of God, draws near to God always on our behalf, and will will forever be at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. So that our place as adopted children is never in question, and our prayers are always answered. Amen? While many of you are familiar with the concept of Jesus as a great mediator, and you even show that to me that you believe that because many of you pray in Jesus' name. While we get this concept, and this is probably nothing new, I fear that familiarity has bred contempt in the church toward this staggering reality. Most of us have not had a near-death experience. I praise God for that. But imagine that you're at the San Francisco Zoo and that tiger jumps over the cage and is standing right in front of you and then someone jumps in front of you and saves your life and is ravaged by that tiger instead of you. That same sense of relief and gratitude you would feel for that person to sacrifice themselves in front of you as though you were standing in the San Francisco Zoo, that same overwhelming sense of I should have been destroyed. This was my just desert. That sense of relief and thanksgiving needs to be recaptured by us in our church. We should never grow tired or bored of the fact that Christ is a mediator. But we should know every day that the tiger of God's wrath should have mauled us. And yet we stand safe and forgiven and loved because Jesus stepped in our place. When we neglect God's awesome holiness, and when we neglect Christ's mandatory mediation, there are naturally other false mediators that are quite happy to step up and fill that void for Christ to our demise and our destruction. Of the false mediators I see today, a few come to mind. The first false mediator I think we get distracted by when, we, then when Christ becomes boring to us is the false mediator, especially amongst men, of ourselves being the mediator. That if I work harder and put that motto onto my life, if I work hard enough, then I can achieve what God has for me. That I can reach a status, my own God of success, or security, or well-being, that I can be my own mediator, that I don't need anyone to stand in my way. If I just work hard enough, I will be accepted by my boss, or by my family, or the culture, 
and I don't need a mediator because that would show my weakness. I know, guys, we hate to show weakness, but oftentimes we think of ourselves as not needing a mediator, that we are our, our own. For women, it's similar, but the messaging is a little bit different. Yasmin helped me with this one. There's a phrase amongst a lot of Christian women, you are enough. It's put on t-shirts, mugs, you are enough. It's a popular phrase. Now, this, this phrase is vague enough that in some sense it could be true. That if you're talking about being Imago Dei, creating the image of God, you have value and worth. But that's not really how it's used in the popular sense. This false mediator of the motto, you are enough, of how women want to be their own, their own mediator, essentially what they oftentimes think and believe and live out is that I am enough, that I am good enough, that, my, that I am accepting myself for how I am, in my God of self-love or my God of having my friends love is, is good enough for me, and I don't need a mediator, that I am good enough to deserve God's love on my own, that God isn't really that holy, and that my life, even though it's a mess, I embrace the mess, and I am enough on my own, and I don't need, and I don't, and what that implies is I don't need a mediator. What we see here in Exodus 20, and what Israel got, is that we, none of us are enough, we will get destroyed by God's fierce holiness. We cannot be enough. We cannot live out the Ten Commandments. And so we see these false mediators of thinking we can be them ourselves. Another false mediator I see today that is happy to step in when we grow bored of Christ. It's the false mediator of, of technology. Google and our smartphones say that we'll, be, we'll come in between you and what you want here, you want entertainment? You want omniscience? You want to know everything you can know? Here, here's, here's a Google device. Here's a smartphone. It will be your in, intermediary, intermediary, your mediator between you and what you most desire. Escape, entertainment, knowledge, power. And so in the heart of Silicon Valley, we see and understand that when people forsake Christ, when people no longer want to sit in the quiet, and pray, and meditate, and be in the presence of God, to be patient. Instead, we're a people that grabs our phones first things in the morning and uses them as our false mediator. We're a people that is distracted by constant buzzings, and clickings, and screens, and, and our, sh- our attention span has been completely shut off to wanting to sit in the presence of Christ. We are happy to have the mediator of technology step in the gap for us. Now, while these things can be great tools for the kingdom, as we've spent time thinking about, they're also a great distraction for what we were made for. We were made to be in the presence of God, to view his holiness, and to appreciate it with fearless fear through the mediator, Jesus Christ. That is what you are ultimately made for. And so whether it's thinking we can be good enough ourselves or thinking we can put something else like technology in the middle, those things can get in the way and distract us from our true mediator. So up to this point, the ultimate question about our standing with God has been answered. We are forgiven in Christ, that we can approach Mount Zion now. But a question still remains. Now that we've been forgiven and shielded by Christ, How are we to now live before this great, fearful presence of God? 
now that we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, how are we, to, how are we supposed to relate to God's awesome, holy presence? This leads us to our final point, our fearless fear. We are to have fearless fear as we are tested in following God that we might not sin. Look with me at verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him, that the fear of him, rather, may be before you, that you may not sin. Herein lies the answer from Moses the mediator to Israel and from Christ the incarnate word to us. The perfect mediator tells us how we are to live. He says, first, don't be afraid. So the first thing he wants to do is comfort us. Isn't that such a grace? Isn't that such an amazing thing that, that this same God of blazing holiness comes to you and the first thing he does through Christ and the mediator is he comes to comfort us? He says, don't be afraid. This is not because God is actually more tame than we thought him to be. He doesn't say, don't be afraid because you're actually more moral and better than you thought you were. No, he says, don't be afraid because I have taken your sin from you and you have the right to draw near into the thick darkness of God because you're covered in my righteousness. John Bunyan says, do you have fears that weaken your heart and keep you away from Jesus and make you believe that it is vain to wait upon the Lord? Do you have fears? If you have fears like these, then they are the devil's work to provoke a type of fear of God that drives people away from God. Sadly, I think many in the church today still have this type of fear that causes them to not trust God, to not come to them with all their problems, to run away from God's presence, to be so aware of their own sin that they don't pick up their Bible and want to read it because they fear that in the Bible they will only find judgment. Moses says that his redeemed people should not fear God with this kind of fear. Why? Not only because they have a mediator, but because, look at the assurance he gives them. He says, because God has come to test you. Any students in here right now are thinking, how is that a comfort to me, that, that I'm not supposed to be afraid because God's come to give me a test? If you're a student, you realize that there's probably nothing more fearful in the world than a test. I wake up from nightmares sometimes, dreaming that I didn't study, and I came and showed up to a test and flunked it. What kind of comfort is this, God? Well, 1 Peter 1, 6-7 tells us why this is a good testing and the grounds for our fearlessness. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials... Anyone have trials here this morning? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's the word tested, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this testing, unlike the SATs, is not to incite more fear in you, but you, cannot be, you can know that you should not fear because God has come to test you in a way that in, implies that if God is even giving you a test at all, it's because you're his child and he loves you. And he wants your faith to be tested 
tried, refined, and genuine. So you know that the fact that he's even giving Israel a test with these Ten Commandments, the fact that you're sitting here this morning and that he's testing you with whatever trials you're going through right now, it's because and it's confirmation that you are a legitimate son or daughter and that you are loved by the Father. God tests us because he loves us. Even this week, with Yasmin struggling with her nausea, I was reminded that God perfectly engineers trials to give us uniquely what we need to grow. So whatever hardship you're going through, whatever trial you're going through right now, know that it has been engineered by God perfectly for your personality, for your pet sins, for what, how God wants to grow you, and he's giving that to you as a beloved father. The testing of your faith affirms that you should not be afraid of him, but that he loves you and he wants to grow you. Amen? And so why does God want us to have a test of faith. I've already tipped you off with the answer of this by the title of the sermon, but verse 20 tells us why God wants us to not fear and be tested. It says that the fear of God may be before us that we may not sin. So immediately when we read this, we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So the lack of fear that we're supposed to have should lead to a testing which leads to fear. Moses is giving us an intentional paradox so that we think more deeply about what it means to fear the Lord. We know that because the Bible doesn't contradict itself, these two fears have to be different in kind. They have to be different in kind. We know that the first fear is a worldly fear. It's a servile fear that cowers and runs away from the presence of God. This other fear is a fear that we are to charge into the presence of God with and relate to him and his holiness rightly. Because we know it's a different fear altogether, we want to look at what else scripture has to say about it. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, probably the most important and well-known passages that tells us about this type of fear. It says, work out your own salvation with, with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we hear that this type of fear and trembling is actually integral to your sanctification and for God to continue his salvation process in you. That this type of fear is not a fear that crushes you, but a fear that God is willing and working in you for his own good pleasure. God takes pleasure in your fear of him, and he takes pleasure in you as you fear him. It's no, it's, so it's not a, a fear that is going to destroy you, but a fear, that take, a fear that we are to have before God that he actually takes pleasure in. Psalm 19, 19, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And so this also tips us off about the right type of fear, that it endures forever. That means, saints, that it is not a temporal evil. It is not something that's just a product of the fall. But this type of fear of the Lord, enduring forever, is something that we, even in heaven, in our sinless state before God, will forever have before him. It will endure forever, and it is not just a product of our sinlessness, or of our sinfulness, but we are indeed to approach God with fear forever, even when there's no sin in the picture. It endures forever. In Isaiah 11.3, Isaiah says, and his, 
Christ's, that is, delight. Christ's delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So the right fear of God, it clearly isn't some primitive training wheels that we start out with in our relationship with God, but we mature to higher ways to relate to him, like love and appreciation. No, the fear of God isn't just training wheels to start out with, but the fear of the Lord is something that Christ is said to have, that Christ delights in the fear of the Lord. So if Christ has it, then it's not just the beginning of our sanctification, but it's also the end of it as well. We are to strive to grow in our fear of the Lord, not get rid of it. (coughs) So, synthesizing Philippians, Psalm, and Isaiah together, and Exodus 20, obviously, what we can say about this right, fearless fear that we must possess to respond to the Ten Commandments properly, Michael Reeves sums up in a way that I think he he puts it really well. He says that we should be overwhelmed by every perfection of God's. Fear is a way of speaking about the intensity of a saint's love for God. We do not love God aright if we do not love him without a trembling, intense love. And so because God is creator and we are creature, because God is holy, even when we're in heaven without sin, we will still be created and he will still be the creator. So even then, we are to have such an intense love, just like walking out in a thunderstorm like Spurgeon loved to do, that we are overwhelmed and in awe of this God so that our love for him trembles. It is a fear that is able to delight in God, just as Christ does, knowing that we are shielded from the danger by Christ, and we are able to even get a glimpse of his awesome holiness. This type of fear, my beloved, it will keep us from sinning as Moses prescribes. He says, I want the fear of God to be before you that you may not sin. So before you think that I'm forgetting the first part of this, it is noteworthy to say that this fear is of bad consequences happening too. Moses disobeyed God and he didn't see the promised land. David was a man of war and didn't get to build the temple. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and they, God put them to death. So don't think that God, even for his saints who he loves, gives us consequences and we should fear breaking his law. That is part of it, certainly. But it is much more than that as well as we saw. This type of, this right type of fear of the Lord that even Christ delights in, it keeps us from sinning, not by keeping us from the trap of what it means to break and cross the line of sin, but it's a fear that draws us into the very holiness of God and allows us to appreciate his presence so much that we won't even want to come near the line of sin. Early on in in my walk, I would think this way of, of, okay, maybe God puts up with these behaviors of mine, but as long as I don't cross that line into sin, no, this type of fear of the Lord is so enamored with his presence, that so delights in him, that we, we don't even have to think about those boundaries of sin, about how we are to particularly break the Ten Commandments, because we will want to know him and know his essence and be like him. So to close us out, why is it so vital that we recover this fearless fear? Fundamentally, so we can relate to God's holiness and so that you can obey the Ten Commandments with a fearless fear. 
that you don't have to stand far off like Israel did, where you don't have to accommodate God or defang him in order to relate to him, make him an idol, but you can truly draw near through Christ with a fearless fear. You can appreciate the lightning and the thunder, and you can stand in his presence knowing that you're safe and yet also in awe of how glorious he is. This fearless fear is built on the reality that Christ has saved us from the penalty of the law. But one thing I think we forget is that Christ not only saves us from the law, but then, remember the Great Commission, he also saves us back to the law. He says, now that you are a disciple, you must go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, the Ten Commandments. So Christ saves us from the penalty of the law, what we couldn't do, gives us his Holy Spirit and brings us back to the law to obey it ourselves and to teach others what it means to keep it. The only way we can do this, saints, is with fearless fear. And he doesn't give us the Ten Commandments so that we can just be moral people, but he wants you, all of you, with fearless fear, he wants you to change the world. The same way that Israel wasn't holy for for their own sake, They were holy and set apart so that they could be a light to the surrounding nations. You too must obey the Ten Commandments and must be righteous, not for your own sake, yes, for your sake, but much more than that, so you can change the world and all of those around you, so that you can show the people around you what God's holiness looks like and what it means to approach him with fearless fear. So our, our final observation is that we need this fearless fear more than ever in this year, 2020, even in Silicon Valley. We need this fear more than ever. Why? Because we are, as Michael Reeves observes, swimming in an age of of anxiety because our culture has largely cast off the fear of God. Because our culture has cast off the fear of God, we live in the age of anxiety right now. We see a culture that has anxieties without and within. It's more medicated than ever. We try to invent ways to isolate and insulate ourselves from the harsh realities of this world through technology, through not being social or neighborly anymore, through retreating and being protected from the real world. We live in a culture that tries to insulate ourselves as much as we can, but does that work? We can't. Even this very week, the threat of a possible war with Iran, the fact of them retaliating and dropping bombs on us, was imminent, and people even thought about it. We live in a time where people are, are just struggling with anxiety to, to be enough, to get into the right college, to, to marry the right person, within and without. That, that there's so many things, whether it's the, the looming threat of socialism in America or the looming threat of war abroad, we can't avoid the fact that this world is fragile and cruel and that it throws us to and fro if we do not have the steadfast bedrock of God's holiness to anchor to. Thankfully, through Christ's mediation, we can have that in God. We can have a fearless fear in God and we don't have to be afraid of both internal or external threats 
if we have the fear of God, which casts out all fear. If we have his perfect love, it will cast out all fear. If we fear the one who is in control of it all, we ought not fear any lesser thing. Amen? Amen. I want to close by reading Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 to you. May this be your meditation in your prayer. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. While the headlines around us every day show us a world that is shaking, we know that you are sure that your rules are perfect and that they will endure forever, that your commandments through the mediation of Christ are now life-giving to us. Help us, God, to not run away from your presence, but through Christ to delight in your presence. I pray that we wouldn't capitulate to the culture and invent a God that's less holy than you really are, but I pray that we would know what it means to have a fearless fear, to love you aright, to, to see and study your attributes so much that we could not help but tremble before you and love you with all our hearts and be a light to those around us. Please do this great work in Cabrian Park Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen.